Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. I'm Dr. Sam Williams, and today we have a fantastic show on our hands with a brilliant guest, Dr. Phil Berry, consultant hepatologist at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London. Phil was a fantastic guest, and his experience in treating patients with liver disease cannot be understated. In this episode, we cover off the examination of our patient, the presentation of the case back to the examiner and the differential diagnosis. Finally, the generosity of the Buy Me A Coffee donators simply knows no bounds. The massive thank yous this week are to Sandy, who recently passed after she told us she had a former podcast guest as one of her examiners. Thank you as well to Chris, who donated as a first-time passer. Thank you to CL and thank you to Dar and Pat, who also passed after listening to the pod. You're all wonderful people, and as always, I'm humbled by your generosity. Congratulations on all your pace of success. But without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and in this episode, it's one of the Paces biggies. This is one of the really common stations which we know comes up so frequently in Paces, and that is chronic liver disease. Joining us today, we have another fantastic expert guest. He is a consultant gastroenterologist and hepatologist at Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust in London. Not only that, but he is a prolific blogger and author. His uh, blog, Illusions of Autonomy, which I will drop a link to in the show notes, closely examines many uh, topical issues facing us as practicing clinicians today in the UK. We're delighted to welcome to the show, Dr. Phil Berry. So Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sam. It's great to be here. And Phil will also be taking on our regular feature of Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our bosses take on a quickfire quiz on a topic of their own choosing with a caveat that it can't be related to medicine. So, Phil, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? I've chosen the only subject that, you know, I really apply myself to with lifelong learning and uh, have a, a lifetime's worth of experience in, and that is Star Wars. I 
absolutely love this topic and I cannot wait for that. That's going to be coming up a little bit later in the show and I'm sure we'll have more to talk about when it comes to that. But for now, myself and all the listeners are Padawan learners, thirsty for knowledge from a Jedi master. So let's get into this Pace's topic of chronic liver disease. So, Phil, I wonder if we can start off with some physiology, some basic definitions. So what exactly is chronic liver disease? Well, the, uh, the clues in, 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 on the packet, it's long-term liver disease, especially in relation to, to PACEs. We're looking at patients with long-term problems who are stable enough to come to, the, uh, come to the hospital or the venue. And essentially, we're talking about uh, fibrosis of the liver, accumulated scarring of the liver from whichever etiology that is, resulting in progression to cirrhosis, which is when you begin to get the signs and the symptoms and the manifestations of chronic liver disease. So for our purposes, there are other sort of nuances around post-transplantation and scars and, and other conditions such as polycystic disease, say, um, which don't fit in that category. For our purposes, we're talking about patients with established cirrhosis. Yeah, fantastic. And as you mentioned, it ticks some of the PACES boxes, which means these patients have long-term, uh, it's a long-term condition with likely relatively stable signs that are able to make their way to the PACES venues. And the most likely place where our listeners are most likely to see these cases is going to be in an abdominal examination station. Obviously, it may be relevant in the other stations, such as the clinical consultations, but we're going to be focusing on this in the pure examination station, which uh, from the new paces format will be a station four, which is the six minutes of examination and then four minutes of presentation and examiner questions. So we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of our listeners as candidates going through their pure abdominal examination station. So Phil, just starting off, we're going to be uh, starting off at the end of the bed with our end of the bed inspection of our patients. So what do our listeners need to look out for from the end of the bed to maybe give a clue that uh, our patient may have a form of chronic liver disease? I mean, the experienced hepatologist would maybe spot it from, from the door. Many of um, our listeners will, will have seen the classic end-stage liver disease patient who um, is borderline malnourished or sarcopenic, so looking thin with wasted muscles. And it's, it's often especially evident in the arms and, and around the shoulders with a, a drawn you know, expression and sunken cheeks. But not all patients look like that. You know, others other are, are earlier on in their journey. You may see abdominal swelling even under the bed sheets or under the clothing to point you to the possibility of ascites even before you lay hands on. And as you get a little bit closer, you might start to pick up some of the cutaneous signs that we're going to talk about in more detail. Patients may be clearly jaundiced, clearly, but they are unlikely to be you know, acutely confused or encephalopathic in an examination setting. And maybe we'll, we'll talk about some of the sort of more subtle um, cutaneous signs as, as we go forward. Yeah, absolutely. So there are some clues which we'll be able to spot from the end of the bed, but obviously we're going to be proceeding through the examination in a stepwise fashion. So 
once we've done our end of the bed examination, we're going to be typically moving to the hands. And this is where you can get a, a good number of signs to look out for. And I guess the thing which I'll remind listeners is, is it's not critical maybe to list every single sign that you've seen from the during the examination, but you you do need to pick up on a, on at least several of these signs and report them back to the examiner because clusters of, of these signs will uh, demonstrate you've got a, a clear understanding of, of what is commonly found in these patients. So, Phil, what sort of signs are, are often found in the hands of these patients? I think the, the most common probably are um, palm erythema, um, so redness around the palms. And, and I find still a good way to detect that is to compare it to your own palm. That sort of controls for the temperature of the room and for a normal person. The Jupitrons is, is nonspecific, but that thickening of the uh, tissues in the palm of the hand is also very common. And sometimes it's quite marked. It's drawing in the, the fourth and fifth fingers in quite a sort of a claw type uh, fashion. Not specific to liver disease, but very common in liver disease. The nail beds and the nails are important. Clubbing, again, very non-specific, And I don't see it very often, to be honest, in, uh, in cirrhosis. Um, you'll look for leukonychia, but it's very subjective. Subjective, that's white nails. And again, you can compare it to your own. You may pick up the more generalized signs as well, such as, as jaundice um, or even scratching on the back of the hands from pruritus. So those are the, those are the main um, hand signs. Uh, as we're talking about the hands, we should talk about asterixis or the metabolic or liver flap. When we're done with the hands, often I, I ask the patient to, to raise their hands and sort of point to the ceiling with their fingers. And that's when you might pick up asterixis um, or tremor. Um, but asterixis is a classic sort of low frequency flapping, which is a problem with the patient's sort of sense of proprioception, uh, where they correct themselves because of sort of neuromuscular drift. But I think those are the those are the main main things to look at in in the in the upper limb. Yeah, fantastic. And Phil, I wonder if you could just expand on asterixis for just a moment. Is is asterixis mm-hmm. a specific sign for a decompensation, or can we often find that as a sign in patients who have who have well compensated liver disease? Yeah, by the usual grading systems of encephalopathy, it's usually under grade two, uh, between naught and four. So you'd normally be pretty pretty poorly to have grade two asterixis. I do see it in patients who are mentating completely normally. So I think it's sort of grade one stroke grade two. And if there's somebody around who happens to be conveniently admitted or or chronically encephalopathic with that sign, they may come to the exam. And even if they don't have it, if you look for it, you might start a conversation about it you know, with the examiner in the wrap-up. So it's good to know about it. So essentially, grade one to grade two asterixis, but I, in my experience, it can sometimes exist you know, in isolation as well. It's not just hepatic. You can get it in hypercapnia, raised CO2, and other metabolic disorders as well. Fantastic. And so moving from the hands up the arms, you've already mentioned a couple of things there about scratching in, in the arms as, as, as an extra mm-hmm. sign. And then th- there's a couple of other signs which may be, again, sort of non-specific, but we may find in the arms of these patients as well. Well, one of the things which I was thinking of in the arms is is br- bruising to suggest uh, sort of almost spontaneous coagulopathy associated with uh, liver disease. Yeah, now that certainly relates to, um, you know, all of the skin, but you do see it, you know, especially if they scratch and they've got low platelets or coagulopathy or just weak tissues, you know, a paper thin skin is, is a sign of chronic liver disease as well. And, and you just get that sort of fragility around the, the skin and, and certainly bruising, I agree, from venipuncture, from bleeding after cannulas and from just yeah, 
bumps and knocks with low platelets. Absolutely. Uh, you're absolutely right there. Tattoos is important in terms of uh, as a potential risk factor for acquisition of viral hepatitis. Now, in reality, how often do a tattooed patients um, end up having hepatitis C or hepatitis B from non-sterile equipment? Very few, but it shows that your Sherlock Holmes methods are working if you actively look for these things and comment on them. The more informal tattoos that could have been done you know, outside a, a registered location are, are important, or if they're done abroad, etc., on, on a holiday, it's quite possible they could have been a route for viral transmission. Yeah, brilliant. And then moving from the arms, we're going to go up to the, the face and neck of our patients, and this is where we're going to need to do some close inspection, maybe something which we not quite as possible to see from the end of the bed where we're going to have to look a bit more closely. Um, but what possible signs might be evident in, in the face or, or the neck of, of our patient? Yeah, so I think at this time we're beginning to look in the eyes for for more objective signs of, of anemia, uh, looking at the conjunctiva, the tongue. You may find jaundice, which is restricted only to the um, to the sclera. Jaundice tends to sort of clear more slowly from the sclera uh, than um, the skin. And so it could be sort of residual uh, from a jaundiced uh, episode. Um, so have a careful look there. Um, as a gastroenterologist, I always look in the mouth for ulceration or tongue signs, but that's not specifically liver, but it's good practice. Um, and then around the side of the neck, um, it's a great catch out if someone's got right heart failure um, causing hepatomegaly, which we'll talk about in a minute. But if they do have a high JVP or um, you can pick up an abnormality there, then it's definitely worth looking for. And also lymphadenopathy. I, again, I think as part of a general examination, um, lymphadenopathy is really important for the possibility of um, malignancy um, related to the GI tract or lymphoma um, or any other you know, chronic inflammatory or infective um, disorder. Yeah, brilliant. And of course, lymphadenopathy is not just confined to the uh, to the neck. That may be something which you look for in the axilla as well when we come to examine the chest the chest yeah. of our patient. And there's there are several other signs in the chest, which um, again, purely on inspection rather than uh, palpation or, or auscultation, as we may be more conventionally uh, uh, expected to do in, in a respiratory or cardiovascular examination. But there are some things on on simple inspection of the chest of a patient with chronic liver disease which can Give a, give a strong indication that, again, there's there's liver pathology implicated. Yeah, spider EV is the classic. Um, you're allowed, you know, a couple more, more as a female because they're driven by estrogen and their effect on cutaneous capillaries. But um, it's very likely that a cirrhosis patient will have noticeable spider nevi um, and pressing them in the middle to get that sort of um, centripetal blanching um, is is a classic sign. Some of them are quite large or even prominent and palpable rather than just visible. Um, gynecomastia is really important um, in male patients. Uh, it's probably far more common than we think. The, the disc of breast tissue can be enlarged or tender, um, mainly because of the underlying liver disease itself and the effect it has on estrogen breakdown. But if patients are on um, aldosterone inhibiting uh, diuretics such as spironolactone, you can get gynecomastia from that as well. Brings us into the sort of feminization signs, the, the scarcity of body hair, um, and later on perhaps um, testicular atrophy, which probably no one's going to look for, but you can mention that you might examine the genitalia uh, for completeness. The overall appearance of the skin 
um, is important in classic hemochromatosis, um, but again, very unlikely that we'll find a patient with iron deposition in the skin, but that sort of um, browny, uh, grey colour um, can be seen. And, and if you're asked why you're looking at the skin, then that's a good one to come up with. Bronze diabetes is one of the uh, manifestations of hemochromatosis, diabetes and a bronze colour. Um, so it's worth knowing that. Yep, brilliant. So hopefully by this point in their examination, the candidates will already have a fairly clear idea that they've picked up on various signs associated with liver disease. And so coming to the abdomen, they're really going to need to have their uh, routine pinned down to ensure that they're going to maximise their marks from the key part of the examination, which is coming to the abdomen of their patient. So again, Phil, if we come to the inspection, so without even laying a hand on the patient yet, the first thing will be to just expose and position the patient appropriately, which ideally in the when you come to examine the abdomen should be uh, flat on their back, should be supine. And before they even lay a hand on their patient, what should our listeners be looking out for? Again, just, just on general inspection of, of the abdomen. Yeah, I mean, look for distension. Um, you don't know that's going to be ascites, but it's likely to be. More unusually, you'll get sort of asymmetrical pr- uh, distension or protuberances from from gross um, organomegaly. That's less likely. Scratches are really common. You know, you tend to scratch your, your stomach if you've got itch, and you often see these lines of scratches um, in the lower abdomen. Um, you may pick up jaundice, which you've missed before. Um, if there are any dressings on the abdomen or uh, small bruises from recent acidic taps or drains, it's definitely worth noting. These patients may well have been in hospital for a few days or coming in regularly for um, acidic drains, and they will have telltale scars where the um, where the, the catheters have gone in, maybe even stitch marks if the catheters have been stitched in for a few days. There is the possibility of visibly distended abdominal veins. Now, I think they are difficult because a lot of people have distended abdominal veins um, without having the classic caput medusae. But caput medusae are the, um, the 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 dilated veins that appear to come out, radiate out from the umbilical area, which are due to portal hypertension and portosystemic shunting. Um, and if if the examiners are lucky enough to have a patient with that, then they'll definitely bring them along. So yeah, that's that's just looking at the abdomen. Um, obviously, scars could be relevant in anybody who's had um, an intervention, classically a, a liver transplant or, or another form of transplantation. Now it comes to the actual point where we come to palpate the abdomen. And I think this is something which a lot of PACES candidates really struggle to do without sufficient experience of examining abdomens on a routine basis. And this is where your your practice of uh, examining pathological abdomens with organomegaly is really going to, to come in. The examination routine is, is well documented. You're going to palpate generally for tenderness, but palpating for masses is going to be most important here. So Phil, I wonder if you can give us your, your best tips with regard, particularly for palpating for organomegaly, which is going to really make or break mm-hmm. our, our listeners' stations, because I think this is going to be a pretty h- a hard sign where potentially missing it could spell disaster for the station if you report this incorrectly. So what would your advice be with regard to the best tips for reliably and consistently correctly palpating for, for organomegaly? I mean, the challenge is maintaining your attention on what your hands are feeling while maintaining your attention on the patient and, and being considerate to the patient. So you don't want to dive in. 
you don't want to have your your eyes on the back of your hands and missing the wincing you know wide open eyes of the of the worried or uncomfortable patient so that takes practice and that takes you know some time to become natural there but at the end of the day you want to be able to pick up what your hands are feeling and believe what your hands are feeling if you feel something it's probably there you know it's not if there's something hard underneath the skin then then you believe what you're feeling so start with making sure the patient's comfortable and exposed to a reasonable um you know with, with the clothing down down to the hips make sure they're in a decent position tell them what you're going to do um and start with light palpation in all four quadrants that is to make sure they're not tender and also to give you a, a general feeling as to where you're going with this examination because you already feel some fullness in the right upper quadrant if there's gross hepatomegaly or more generally if there's splenomegaly or other masses then go for a deeper palpation in all four quadrants you get lots of advice about how often you should palpate you know i think two or three times um two or three passes with your hand because otherwise it just looks like you're you're not sure and and you're not picking up any further information and you do want to be somewhat slick at this and then having done all four quadrants and not picked up any obvious abnormalities usually um, you'll be zoning in on the organomegaly itself and the place to start is with the liver and that's where you place your hand down in the right lower quadrant nice and low to make sure you don't accidentally put your hand on top of the liver and then move up in which case you'll never feel the edge so you gently depress and you gently pull your, your, the edge of your hand upwards towards the ribcage and ask the patient to breathe in. And you keep on doing that, moving up a centimeter or two at a time until you get up to the, up to the costal margin. And if there is a liver edge, it should come down and meet the edge of your finger as you're doing that when the patient breathes in. And um, that's where you need to be keeping your eye on the patient because if they do have hepatomegaly, it could be tender and they might wince when you touch it. Could be gallbladder as well, of course, less likely. Um, if there was a, a gallbladder in a jaundice patient, then you'd be thinking um, of um, of Courvoisier sign, which is uh, gallbladder distension in painless jaundice. Then if you do hit a liver edge, you need to characterize it quite quickly. It's usually going to be smooth in a liver disease patient. The, the knobbly, um, irregular liver in cirrhosis is quite usually small, but it is sometimes large. If you feel irregularity of the liver border, think about malignancy um, but that is probably less likely in an exam and then having f felt the liver edge you need to trace it um, to to work out the extent and does it go to the midline does it go beyond and just swiftly characterize the shape of the liver i mean normally although it's not part of palpation i would in the interest of slickness i would begin to think about percussing over the um over the rib cage when you picked up hepatomegaly so come down from the uh, from the breast area and percuss down until you get dullness. And that will give you some sense of where the liver starts. Having done the liver, you will then think about the spleen. Um, and that's where you start in the same place as you did for the liver in the right lower quadrant. But you move up diagonally towards the left upper quadrant um, and you ask the patient to breathe in. And it's worth going to the effort of asking the patient to roll over onto their right side. Um, so that it f makes the spleen fall down towards you. Now, splenomegaly is quite unusual. 
and it would normally be seen in a, a hematology type patient, I think, um, rather than a liver patient. Palpable splenomegaly and cirrhosis is quite unusual. There's usually something else going on. Obviously, while you're in the abdomen, you will think about examining for the kidneys as well and thinking about um, confirming ascites by eliciting shifting dullness, uh, where you determine the, the level of fluid and then you ask the patient to roll towards you, roll away from you, sorry, and see if it becomes uh, resonant as the fluid falls down to the, to the lower part of the abdomen. But that's how I do it. The general clue is to, to keep thinking about the patient, though, talk to them, make it look natural, make sure you're not causing pain. Yeah, absolutely. It would be a, a real shame to, you know, pick up the marks for the uh, for the correct detection of signs and then lose it on patient welfare instead because you've made the patient uh, you've made the patient uncomfortable. Absolutely right. Um, and so you'll uh, palpate for uh, all of the uh, all of the organs as Phil's mentioned. Check for shifting dullness, and then uh, you'll come to listen to the abdomen. You'll auscultate. I don't think, well, I can't think of anything in particular that I'd be auscultating for, particularly with regard to chronic liver disease, Phil. Yeah, uh, it's it's normally classically over the liver to see if there's um, any sort of um, hum from a, a very well vascularized tumor. Again, vanishingly unusual, but it is part of the formal examination. You, if you had a patient, you know, with an acute abdomen and thinking about bowel obstruction, obviously you would um, listen to the abdomen as well to see if there are any bowel sounds or any tinkling sounds. But this is where it's quite difficult for candidates. If they're not 100% sure what the point of the case is, and you normally would be from the suggestions that are made, then you need to, how far do you tailor your examination? Um, you don't want to do things that are completely irrelevant to the direction the examination is going in. Um, but as long as there's a justification for it, that's fine. And I think it's reasonable to auscultate over the liver. Although, as I say, very unusual to find a, a positive thing there. Um, just going back to the liver, it's worth bearing in mind what we said at the beginning about heart failure and right heart failure. In theory, you might detect um, a pulsatile liver edge and you might be able to elicit a hepatojugular reflex um, if you press up on the liver gently but firmly and see if the JVP changes and becomes more prominent. And I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do um, if you've got that suspicion. Yeah, fantastic. And then moving down from the abdomen, we'll come to the legs of our patient, which is uh, routine, routinely is near to the end of the examination. And I mean, more generally, as we've just mentioned, heart failure, pitting uh, peripheral edema is going to be important to look for, but also might be reflective of hypoalbuminemia as well, Phil. Yes, absolutely. So edema is a sign of chronic liver disease, um, probably multifactorial to be fair, but um, you will definitely want to, to look for that. This clearly could be related to absorption as well or recent you know, acute illness and resuscitation. Um, but it's definitely a sign. In the same way that ascites is a sign, you have excess fluid, excess total body water, and some of that will be in the legs. It may even go all the way up to the thighs and the waist. Um, it's very common for someone with ascites to be you know, globally, um, uh, have global edema. Um, that responds uh, usually to diuretics. Yeah, fantastic. And then the next thing will be more or less coming to the end of the examination, but you may well have some time to spare. Usually in that time, you'd fill it by mentioning the things which are probably not maybe wholly appropriate to do in, in an exam style setting. So one of the things you mentioned was an external uh, genitalia examination for 
testicular atrophy, the fem- feminization signs that you mentioned. And there are some things which I've put down here, which are more sort of medical school habits rather than anything else. So a digital rectal examination, examination of hernial orifices and a, and a urine dip. Those are sort of the things which I used to remember from, you know, your medical school finals. Are these are these reasonable things to sort of mention to the examiner as, as a bit of routine, Phil? Yeah, I think I think you want to show that you're thinking beyond what you're seeing. You're going to the next stage. You're you're a doctor in ED. You're thinking, okay, I've met this patient for the first time on the ward or in the ED. Where am I going with this? And a rectal examination could be very relevant to a patient with chronic liver disease because of gastrointestinal bleeding. So you're not doing it for prostatic hypertrophy. You're not doing it for you know, rectal carcinoma. You're doing it because you you want to make sure they haven't had a variceal hemorrhage. So that's very very relevant. The hernial orifices, not so relevant. Uh, testicular atrophy in real day, everyday practice, we, we don't palpate for that, um, but it's worth mentioning. And urine dip is, is, is useful, especially if there's edema. You're interested to know whether you could be barking up the wrong tree and they've got nephrotic syndrome. Yeah, absolutely. And so after you've concluded your examination, we're going to be turning to the examiner and presenting our case back to the examiner and explaining the signs that we found that will justify our suspected diagnosis of chronic liver disease and so the sort of it's important to have a structure with your presentation so phil maybe you can uh, critique my approach because this is the way that i that i did it so my first step was identify the signs that have led you to believe the patient has chronic liver disease and and i mean this is quite pretty obvious but also the the difficulty here is that you're going to probably have multiple signs we've mentioned plenty through the course of this conversation already and mentioning as many signs as possible as you can remember and in paces one important principle is that you don't uh, state a sign which is not relevant so whilst you might have detected many signs you're not going to make up the fact that the patient for example has scleral jaundice when they don't even though it may be consistent with your diagnosis so hopefully that's nice and obvious that you're just going to state the the signs which have led you to your diagnosis and then the next thing which phil i wonder if you, you can jump in on is as well is whether or not the patient uh, has compensated or decompensated liver disease so which of the signs that we've discussed already would lead you to think that this patient is mm-hmm. probably uh compensated and uh, and then what would be the signs that they are potentially on the on the verge of decompensated liver disease yeah i think if you talk about compensation you're demonstrating that you understand bit more hepatology than than just cirrhosis or no cirrhosis and it's easier to talk about what are the signs of decompensation the many of the signs of chronic liver disease are not related to the the current degree of synthetic liver dysfunction Um, but decompensation is where it just can't handle everyday life anymore and so you begin to see the consequences of that and those consequences are jaundice any degree of jaundice in the eyes, on the skin. Those consequences include excess body water, sodium retention. So that's ascites and edema. Encephalopathy is another sign of decompensation, likely largely related to ammonia and that's and the, and and its um, handling in the brain and any signs of encephalopathy slow speech confusion disorientation asterixis will be a sign of decompensation and bleeding is is the other major form of decompensation but those are the those are the classic signs that the liver is not only cirrhotic which many people can have and be walking down the high street with no real visible signs to the bystander 
the decompensation occurs when you get those um, one or more of that uh, package of, of signs and symptoms. Uh, so fluid, jaundice, bleeding, confusion, stroke, encephalopathy, and those are the signs of decompensation. It's that time of the show again where we shout out Pass Test for their fantastic paces resource. As you guys surely will know by now, Pass Test has a fantastic range of practice videos for you to watch to sharpen you up before your exam day, some of which are closely related to this episode of Chronic Liver Disease. So to get access to those videos and many more, just click any of the links in the show notes. Now back to our chat with Dr. Phil Berry. Yeah, fantastic. And then the next thing, which is going to be critically important and we'll be coming on to talk about in more detail is suggesting an underlying etiology. And this is really where you're going to be trying as, as best you can to flex your differential diagnostic skills. It may be quite difficult mm-hmm. in paces because obviously you don't have the luxury of being able to take a history, which we do in clinical practice. But Phil, are there any clinical signs during our examination which may indicate an uh, an etiology to our listeners as they go through their examination? I think this is difficult and sensitive. The PACE's mindset is very much to caricature stories and patients. And um, somebody with um, a higher body mass index on the, on the couch doesn't necessarily have non-alcoholic steatohepatitis um, and, and NASH cirrhosis. But you've got to go with what you can see. So you could say, you know, I believe this patient has um, chronic liver disease and has signs of cirrhosis, plus or minus decompensation. There's a wide differential diagnosis here. However, what may be relevant to this particular patient is uh, central adiposity, waist circumference, high body mass index. If there's any clues in, the, um, in, in, in any information given to you about metabolic syndrome, blood pressure, diabetes, gout, insulin resistance, um, hyperlipidemia, dyslipidemia, then they will build into that potential diagnosis. And NAFLD, NASH, fatty, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is incredibly common and has always got to be on the list, I think. Um, the viral hepatitis, you can't say. You, you, you may find a tattoo, but as I said earlier on, there's no real connection generally. And um, the patient's ethnicity cannot really be used in that um, story, although viral hepatitis is more common in some areas, hepatitis B um, in Asia, for instance, and Africa through vertical transmission. And then you're into the alcohol, which is very difficult without taking a history, but incredibly common. So you've always got to throw that in there as a possibility. And then you're going to get into your narrower, more small print and rare diagnoses, which you might be able to um, bring forward if, for instance, you've got someone who fits the um, typical profile for primary biliary cholangitis, for instance, you know, a younger or middle-aged female patient, or autoimmune hepatitis, or hemochromatosis, uh, which we mentioned earlier on. You know, you'll be lucky to pick up a, a confirmatory, confirmatory information from how the patient appears. You would need more information to really sort of pin it to those diagnoses. Uh, bear in mind the malignancy question. It's not impossible to misinterpret a patient with malignancy for someone with cirrhosis. We've all done it. Um, so, you know, if there was hepatomegaly with any irregularity, then you've got to consider that, especially if there was a complicating hepatocellular carcinoma, for instance. 
Yeah, fantastic. And I guess the other the other thing to mention, which again we wouldn't have without a uh, a thorough history, is drugs. Yeah, of which there are many culprits. I'm sure we'll come on to uh, talk about that a little bit later when we talk about differential diagnosis. In fact, we could we could just talk about it now, to be honest, because I think that's more or less the the approach that we would take. So just to recap very quickly, is state the signs which you believe uh, which have led you to believe the patient has chronic liver disease. Express a uh, an opinion on level of decompensation. Is there evidence that this is a decompensated uh, liver disease? And then, if possible try and have a stab at the etiology. But again, as Phil says, it is difficult without taking a history and without having more information. Uh, lastly, I mean, we'll talk about drugs as a, as a possible cause, which aside from having a uh, a box of medications at the bedside, uh, I, I think would be difficult. But what are the most common drugs which uh, lead to um, significant liver dysfunction in, in your experience? Yeah, I mean, a lot of acute liver dysfunction related to medications. Um but in terms of the long-term uh, use resulting in cirrhosis, it's a really changing field. You know, methotrexate was the, the classic, but there's a lot of debate now as to whether methotrexate is genuinely related to liver fibrosis. And looking back over a lot of evidence, I think it was over-interpreted, um, the relevance of methotrexate. It may well be a stronger association with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in those patients. But I still think it's it's worth discussing. So methotrexate, so if you've seen in your examination that there are signs of a rheumatological disorder, rheumatoid arthritis, then definitely bring that in. Um, amiodarone is a cause of chronic liver disease, but we don't see it very often. They will clearly have that for cardiac reasons and might have an irregular pulse. You'll be lucky to make that link, but it's worth mentioning. Um, Antituberculous drugs generally, you know, cause acute liver dysfunction and a whole myriad of medications, you know, antibiotics, um, biologics, anti-inflammatories cause acute liver dysfunction, but don't really result in in fibrosis and cirrhosis. So I think the drugs is not something to really dwell on in terms of the statistical chance of it being relevant, unless you are being thrown a clue that there's definitely a drug, you know, in the story somewhere. Brilliant. And the only thing to say to our listeners is that having the common causes of chronic liver disease at the tip of at the tip of your tongue for the exam uh, is is of critical importance. We know that this is something which comes up so commonly, and and preparing for this station for for an abdominal examination station is is absolutely one of the most important stations. So these are the types of answers you need to have at the tip of your tongue. What are the commonest causes of chronic liver disease? And then, as Phil's already talked about, the reasons uh, or signs which might indicate that some uh, that a patient has become decompensated. I, I think it's helpful to to have a little way of approaching that. You know, we talked about alcohol, talked about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Just for information, just this month, um, they've changed the nomenclature of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and it's become rather complicated. But it's going to be called metabolic associated uh, steatotic liver disease, and there are some other subcategories but if anybody wants to be really up to date go and look up the publications from this month june june 23 around the renaming of NAFLD. Uh, it's quite interesting so alcohol NAFLD, um, viral hepatitis and then the helpful way of thinking about it is metabolic and autoimmune so metabolic is going to be hemochromatosis and wilson's and the autoimmune mediated is going to be autoimmune hepatitis primary biliary cholangitis um, and primary sclerosing cholangitis, which we haven't talked about. And those are the five main 
um, categories. Don't forget alpha-1 antitrypsin as well. Probably put that in the metabolic, um, if they, especially if they've got chronic um, obstructive pulmonary disease. But I think if you can remember those, those five broad categories, that will see you through. So that brings us to the end of this episode looking at the examination, presentation and differential diagnosis of chronic liver disease. Next time we complete our conversation with consultant hepatologist Dr Phil Berry and talk through the investigations and management of this important condition. Not only that, but Phil tackles his quiz the consultant topic of Star Wars which is absolutely essential listening even if I say so myself. So without further ado... That's just about all the time we have for this week's show. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe to the show or leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We always love to hear from you. So give us a shout on our Twitter. It's at Prepaces Podcast. If you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, it's buymeacoffee.com slash Prepaces Podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you for listening. I've been Dr. Sam Williams and we will see you next time on the Prepaces Podcast.